Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Emmanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at EmmanuelAG.com. I know we got a few guests, some that have missed uh, even the previous two weeks. I would really, really encourage you, go back and listen to where we've laid the foundations for this series. I'm not even sure how long we're going to be in it. Um, If it's the kingdom of God and I get to talk about it, we could be here the rest of the year and then some. Uh, So I just, this is a passion of mine. You guys have heard a little bit of that um, already. And if you were here last week, you certainly got to lock in on some of the things that I believe are pivotal for us as followers of Christ that are kingdom-based um, the come, deny yourself, like the, the fluff that doesn't grow a church typically that you hear and all those grow conferences. And, but it's, it's the foundation of Jesus of deny yourself, follow me, um, and then watch what I will do, right? That's, that's, that's the beauty of the cross, that it brings life um, when we die. And so uh, we're going to continue in this series. We are in week three. If you'll go back and listen to week one, Bruce does a phenomenal job. Thank you, Bruce, so much. Let's, give, let's encourage Bruce today. He updates those podcasts, keeps them up there. He, was tell, he's, he listens to all of them, and he hears all my mouth clicks, and if I'm chewing gum, I didn't realize how bad that sounds when he's wearing headphones having to edit those. So I am so sorry, Bruce. Thanks for putting up with us. But he uh, is able to keep those updated. And two weeks ago, if you'll go back and listen to the podcast, you hear what we talked about where Peter... Peter responds in Matthew 16 to the question that Jesus poses to all of his disciples. He says, who do they say? Who who do the crowds? Who do the groups? Who do the throngs? What is the culture? What is everyone saying about who I am? And they, they discuss that for a little bit. They talk about how maybe even Herod's belief that John the Baptist has come back to life to haunt him may be true through the form of Jesus. And, and maybe even Elijah and uh, one of the prophets, Jeremiah. There's all these different answers of who Jesus is. But then Peter speaks when Jesus says, but who do you say I am? And this is the question that is pivotal for us understanding the kingdom is our response to who Jesus is. Who is he? As Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, the one sent of God, the one that upon this revelation of who Jesus is, he would build his church. And I know it's been argued for centuries past that maybe he would build his church on, on, an, uh, on a particular person and that if we follow this lineage, we're a part of the true church. But the idea, I believe, that is truly in Scripture is that it is upon this revelation. It is, hey, you're Peter, and upon this bigger rock, let's look at that real quick. He says, Simon Peter you answered, you are the Messiah, son of the living God. And he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So that first week, we really talked about how this is a spiritual revelation. This isn't something that you can go out there and have a conversation on the campus of a university with someone and apologetically argue Who is Jesus to you? Because this is something that has to be born not of man, but of the Spirit. How many of you know there is still a spirit of this age that clouds our minds and eyes from being able to see who Jesus is and the glory that was shining through him? 
It is still prevalent today in 2020. It is still going to be prevalent when we have potentially uh, two candidates argue with one another. And unless they can answer that question for who Jesus is, they may espouse to so many things that are not kingdom related. There may be so many things on both sides of the, on the podiums there, okay? Let's be honest, because Jesus is neither Democratic nor Republican. But in response to this question, here is what Jesus says. And I tell you that you are Peter, Petra, Little Rock. And upon this greater foundation of a rock, Petras, I will establish, I will build. The edifice of my church will be founded here. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The revelation of Jesus that is born of the Spirit that cannot be fabricated, made up, forced, is what God is establishing His people, His congregation, His collective community upon, upon who He is. And so I'm so excited to be able to add to what we have looked at already and to see where Jesus then begins to talk about the things that must occur in order for this kingdom to be established. And if uh, you were here last week, Peter was like, no, 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 Jesus. Again, Peter speaks up, right? Spokesman of the rest. And he says, Jesus, no, 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 no. That's not how you establish a kingdom. Remember, the Roman government still in authority. Aren't you going to share a little bit that, of that with us? And, you know, how is this going to work out? When you're establishing your kingdom, Jesus, it's not going to be through death. It's not going to be through these things that you're saying. You've got to suffer at the hands of all the religious officials, so there was this different understanding of the type of kingdom and the principles with which it was based upon that Jesus was claiming was going to be established. And so we dove into that a little bit further last week as we looked at, um, I'm going to skip ahead here and just reviewing. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple, Jesus talking to the 12, he says, you're going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And uh, we talked about how the cross is not something that we can espouse to cheat grace. We even looked at some of the things that Dietrich Bonhoeffer had said in The Cost of Discipleship, one of my favorite books as a young man. And it just talks about how grace, costly grace, is the fact that it cost Jesus his life. And now he bids us come and die. He bids us to come and follow. That if you want to find life, if you want to find life in your marriage, it's going to, be meaning, it's going to mean giving up of yourself. If you want to find health and healing in, in your relationships, it's going, to be, it's going to mean that you're not first, that you prefer, that you put someone else ahead of yourself. The principles of the kingdom, as, as we talked about, are upside down from the ways of our culture and what we so commonly find in the way people interact with one another. But they are the ones that bring us life. And so today we're going to switch gears and we're going to talk about one of the keys that I think is crucial that as the chapters go on, unfolds and becomes clear. But before we do, as we transition uh, and switch gears, would you just bow with me? I want to pray and just ask the Lord to fill my mouth. Father, I just thank you so much that what you are doing in our day is eternal. That while our life may be a blip on the radar, Lord, we're able to position ourselves and enjoy life to the full, enjoy the relationships you've given us, but God, for a purpose. We can see your kingdom's work being done through our relationships, through our words, through what we do every day. God, even no matter where we work, we can find ourselves filled with thoughts of the kingdom. We can find ourselves using the words that you have given us and the relationships you've put in our life to see your kingdom extended by showing grace and compassion and love and reflecting you well. 
Father, continue to use my words today as we dive into something that I believe you're going to speak to each one of us about. In your name I pray, amen and amen. Before we get too much further into this, I do want to recognize I've got a couple of friends here that are, um, that are really just here to criticize my, my sermon and make sure I'm doing a good job. Pastor Randy Carter, a retired pastor from West Tennessee, and um, honestly, we should be handing him the microphone, and incredible, uh, been able to listen to some wisdom, I've been able to go to his house and get to know Nancy as well. Just so honored to have both of you here this morning. You're making me nervous as I'll get out, though. Thanks for being here. <laughs> So today, um, as I was looking at the scripture, I honestly thought, okay, here is where we've been from Matthew 16 into 17 with the transfiguration and where it goes into 18 and all the kingdom language, which it's riddled with it in the gospels as we talked about how Jesus talks about the kingdom more than any other uh, individual in the scriptures. 136, 137 times he talks about the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven in Matthew's language, the kingdom of God in, in the rest of the gospels. But then the New Testament authors don't quite use it as much. But after this pivotal moment with who Jesus is, we begin to see him continuing to talk about how he must head to Jerusalem, what he must suffer, but then the kingdom language that they must be honed in on because those are the keys that he's given them. And and they're still trying to figure out why is it not going to be established the way that we thought? Why are you not going to overthrow the authorities in the manner we expected? Why are you not doing the things, Lord, we thought you were going to do in our lives? What's happening here? You think I left my fishing business for this? To become a servant? That's not what you told me. You said, follow me. And I thought, oh man, look at all the miracles. I saw you demonstrating the kingdom, Jesus. But now this is how you establish it? Through sacrifice? Through servanthood? We said it's with a towel, not a sword, that his kingdom would be established. And so I think that they are still locked in on this language, trying to interpret and understand what he really means. And what I thought we were going to talk about today that was in these further chapters, I don't think we're even going to be able to get to, maybe in a week or two. But as I was having lunch with uh, BJ this week, it, was, it, it became apparent that he had already read my chapters and maybe didn't know it. He was telling me about a book he was reading by Andrew Murray on humility, just called that, Humility, by Andrew Murray. And as I began to go back and continue studying my chapters, thinking that we were going to be talking about forgiveness, that that is the, other, the, the only other place where Jesus used the words church, ecclesia, that there is something related to the kingdom and how we have reconciliation both with God but then with man. And that's still true. But I realize there's a principle in the scripture before we even get there. And I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. I hear all those pages. I'm just going to rustle mine since you guys didn't bring any paper ones. So dial it up real quick on your phone. I'm going to throw it up on the screen as well, I believe. Let me make sure I've got it here. I'm going to have to skip ahead. Matthew chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 1. And so what I'm going to talk to you today about is that the foundations of the kingdom the first key that I think is crucial from what Jesus, the, what I just see in the text is humility, is humility. I've never preached on humility, and if you ask my wife, she can tell you why. So (laughs) I was doing my sermon prep this week. I said, Candy, I've never preached on humility. She said, yeah, how you doing with that? (laughs) So I have a wonderful wife to keep me humble. How many men can agree with that in the house? 
And so we're going to dive in here and see what Jesus has to say, and, and supposedly my wife as well. Matthew 18, starting in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They're already rock stars in humility. You can hear it in the question, right? So what has happened, though, in the timeline since we last saw Peter and then Jesus' discourse to them? So we had about a week span, six days, it says, and then he takes three of them. He takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration because they have this charismatic event where just, I mean, here's Elijah, here's Moses. They're, they're there on this mountain. I mean, Jesus looks different. And the three boys that he took with him, one being one, he just said, Satan, get behind me about a week earlier after he had the great revelation of who Jesus was. And then James and John, you know, John thinking that he's Jesus' favorite, you know, the beloved, uh, always laying his head on Jesus, like hanging out. Like, I mean, they're tight, right? And then James, they're all up there. They're having this experience, and they come back down from the mountain. And Jesus demonstrates that the kingdom is, is there's a boy that is possessed with, with a demon, and he cast it out, demonstrating that the kingdom of light that Jesus is establishing is greater than any other force, any other demonic uh, stronghold in this world. And then he goes on to talk about how we will continue to conquer this through what I'm about to suffer. And he talks about his death and then his resurrection. And it's so critical. I think the disciples missed this, that they locked in on the fact that he was going to die, but forgot to mention, they, they just glossed right over the fact that he would be raised to life. I think they locked in on the suffering, but they couldn't. Have you ever heard some news that someone started out, would you like the bad news or the good news first? And they gave you the bad news. You know, sometimes, you know, someone's going to criticize you, sit you down for your review at your work, and they do the sandwich approach, and you're just like, really? Stop saying anything good. Just get to the bad. We know what you're doing. Don't even, don't even bother. I do that with my staff all the time. Christian, you, do it. you did a great job today. Uh, with the youth, but we're going to, no, I don't do that as much. I, I like to get straight to the point, and I think that's what they heard when Jesus said, I'm going to suffer at the hands of the religious officials. End of story, forgot to even tune into the fact that then I'm going to, after being crucified and buried, I'm going to rise again. They missed hope, and I think so often that is the way our human nature, we are wired we are wired to hone in on the negative and completely miss the purposes is because I'm about to destroy death. I'm about to eradicate it from your lifestyle. Your death will not be eternal any longer. You will no longer be dead in your sins because of my resurrection. And we hear that in, our, in feedback that people give us. We hear that in the criticism that your wife gives you about humility. We, just, we hone in on that, don't we? Because we get locked in on the negative without understanding that there is still life on the other side. That there is still a process of transformation that is taking place. That that's not the end of our story, nor of Christ. And so he talks about the death, the resurrection, getting to this place where they're trying to you know, capture Jesus at the end of 17 on, Jesus, are you really tax exempt? Part of a tax exempt organization, really? And so Peter's like, go get that fish. We're going to pay our taxes. We're not going to be tax exempt today. So I don't know how it worked in the Roman government. I don't know if they had 501c3 status or, or what was happening. But he had to prove that he was still submitting to and honoring the local authorities. And then they get into this question. Who is the greatest? You've been talking about this kingdom. And you've been talking about how these things are going to happen to you. 
well, what's going to happen when you're gone? What's going to happen when you're not here? Who's going to run the show? Who do you really trust the most, Jesus? You took three up on that mountain. We're thinking maybe it's one of them. Let's be honest. Those are probably the conversations that are happening. And so Jesus, he turns to you and to me, and he says, bring me a kid. You went from a 501c3 ministry who's working with children. Come on, somebody. Y'all hear what this Jesus is part of a kid's ministry. And so he calls up the kids. I only say that because I am. He calls up this kid and he says, hey, listen, you see this child? He says, truly I tell you, unless you change, and I think they missed this word right here, or we do today, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus isn't mixing words here. It's not like it's going to be really hard or you're not going to learn all the lessons you need to learn. You're just going to, your faith is going to be stunted. He says, you will never be able to understand the kingdom's principles if you can't change and accept it like these little children. So what does he mean? He goes on, and I want to look at that word change. The word change here is refo means to change the position of something relative to something else by turning. It's similar to the word that we know of as metanoia that would be a change of mind, or that's the word for repentance, to be going in one direction or the other. But this has to do with position versus just a mind. This is your life, your whole direction, what your values are based off that take you this way. They will have to change and head in another direction. He says, you think that being the greatest is what you really need to strive and work towards. I know many of you guys, like me, you're working towards a promotion. You want to see that your work is valued and honored. I mean, we love that feedback. It helps us know that what we're doing, we're doing the right things. We want to know the system of, of how we're approved of that. And, but he's saying, hey, you're looking for promotions in a kingdom that doesn't operate on these same principles. Because if you want to inherit the kingdom of God, if you want to walk in the, the veins of the flow of this kingdom, you're going to have to understand it from the perspective of a child. You're going to have to change. And he says, he goes on, and I want to read, I'm sorry, I want to read verse 4 that I didn't put up here for you. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So it went from, unless you change and become like this little child, and I think so many of us think that that is childlike faith, that is innocence, that is uh, a trust, but then Jesus explains what he means by it. He says in verse 4 that it's whoever humbles himself, humbles himself like this little child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What type of humility does a child exhibit? What type of humility I think about it. It happened yesterday. Levi was on his, uh, his, his little balance bike. There's no pedals on it. And he just, he just boom, 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 booms all day, every day. It's in our house. He's popping wheelies. He's drug it up on our bed the last couple of days. Uh, that, that bike goes everywhere. If, if he's wearing a diaper, he's also got a bike. Okay, they're, they're connected somehow. And so Levi takes his bike everywhere, but he fell off yesterday. He hasn't fallen off, I don't know, ever. And he scraped his knee. And I could see that immediately his response was, the arms are coming up. Somebody's got to come and get me. Someone needs to hold me and console me. And I think about so many times when we are operating in 
maybe our own speed, maybe operating in our, in our own agenda, our own plans, but things don't go the way that we had expected or turn out a little bit different. Maybe we even in life and relationships and work and habitual sins, whatever we have found ourselves in, we found ourselves crushed and bruised and even a little scraped up. And the only right response is really to just raise our arms and say, God, I have to, I need you. I need you. I, I can't make this pain stop. I can't even make the bleeding. I don't know how to do it. I'm, I'm a child and I need someone to care for me. And my wife grabbed him and she didn't make the pain stop immediately, but her comfort and, con- and just the consoling nature that she brought to that was enough to begin to change his perspective on what had just happened. Everything's going to be okay. Because I'm in the arms of someone who I know I can trust and has got me. The humility that we have, it starts with a hands raised that we surrender to someone greater than ourselves who can truly carry us through. And so Peter really picks up on this language. Notice it's Peter. <laughs> Think of the conversations that have just been had. That Jesus and Peter and the group of disciples that were there. And Peter would write this in 1 Peter chapter 5. He would say in the same way, You who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, though, clothe yourselves. Put on humility towards one another. Because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to who? To the humble. Shows favor to the humble. And he goes on. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up. In due time. I think Peter is thinking back to this, these conversations that the disciples are having with Jesus, of the revelation I've had of him, of who's going to be the greatest. And then Jesus is explaining, no, it is not, you, you are calculating the greatest on a whole different metric that is one of this world, that is one of an overthrow of a government that you're expecting me to have. But he said, I'm telling you that it is going to come because you are the servant of all. No servant is even greater than his master. You too will suffer and go through things. But your master has already gone before you. And I have overcome all the suffering, the death, anything that you could encounter. And resurrection life is what is going to be in your DNA because my spirit is within you. And he speaks these things and he says, now, if you want to find them, though, it's going to come by humbling yourselves. And I think Peter, he heard that and he began to process that. And he would still deny Christ, even though, no, not I, Lord. And I think even in his failure, he would learn what it meant to depend on God. Let me tell you about my three cocks crowing experience in life. What in the world do you mean by that, Michael? When Peter learned humility, I think he learned it even outside those fire rings as Jesus was being taken through the crowd. And when I was in L.A., I had just moved from, you, some of you may have heard parts of this, I had moved from Florida um, back home for like two weeks to be able to go out for my internship at the Dream Center in Los Angeles. And I was excited, man. I was pumped. I'm straight out of Bible college. I'm full of fire and, you know, and just, we're going to change the world. That's what I was told we were going to do. And so I get out there and the world begins to change me. (laughs) And it was hard. And I'm working for someone who's falling asleep in the office, type A, driven. And I'm like, I'm getting exhausted just by the the job load, the workload. I'm 20 into 21 years old. Uh, I'm coming out of a ministry that is cut of one cloth, and I'm experiencing something in Los Angeles that is very different. 
And it was hard for me to, to palette all of that, to really work through and process it. And so I got burnt out. I remember talking to, um, talking to my boss, Todd Leader, and had a great relationship with him. But I was just toast spiritually because where my expectations were and what my reality was was very different. And I had a, I had a hard time kicking my spiritual uh, rear in gear and really reconnecting to God and, and getting the revelation that I was used to because it was so easy in the bubble of my Bible college. Let me just be honest. But I got into a different experience and it, just the schedule and the things I could be a part of. And, and not all of it, it wasn't necessarily sin. It was just busyness. And my heart began to grow numb in that. And just the, the ability to, to process it as a young person was tough. And so I came home and I came home just spiritually zapped. But I had a plan, and I knew how to fix it, Rich. Here's what I was going to do, because it had always worked in the past. I'll fast. I'm going to go to this conference at New Year's up in Kansas City. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to be right back in my spiritual lane, and we're going to be rocking and rolling in no time. I did all these things, and none of them worked. <laughs> none of it worked. But wait a minute, fasting had always worked before. I put on the worship music just like I always did. I played the same CD that it always worked, right? I, I used the same formula, but the Lord was trying to show me that it is not in your measures of, of, of what effort you can squeeze out to find spiritual life because it is flowing from my spirit, not from you. And I had to learn, I had to learn humility through failure. I had to learn dependency upon God by not being able to make spiritual life happen in my own strength through my flesh. It's the fruit of the Spirit, Kelsey. It's not the fruit of Michael squeezing out some patience, because believe me, that stinks. That's some nasty fruit. You bite into it, and it looks good on the outside. It looks patient, but it's rotted, because it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of the flesh. And we can mimic and model humility. We can even... Oh, like a child, I'm going to study, I'm going to study children. I'm going to know what they're like, Kayla. And I'm going to imitate that in my relationship with the Lord. But if it has not been a heart transformation, if it has not been in a heart that has come to the place of utterly depending upon Him, then it won't matter. We're, we're propping up some, some smoke and mirrors to, of a facade that isn't real of something that's not really happening on the inside. And Jesus and Peter, I think, are finally kind of connecting on what this looks like. And, and Peter is starting to understand it even later as he writes this, that you have to humble yourselves if you want to find yourself ever at the place to be able to use in kingdom ways. That you have to find yourself, if you want to receive grace, it's not going to be through pride. And I think this is one of the things that we so often miss that we think the pathway to spiritual advancement or, or something is, is making sure people hear us, that we've got the right words, that we've got this, you know, right now it's the skinny jeans and the hipster haircut. I don't know. I don't do any of that, so it's not going to work for me. I love my chacos, and that's about as good as it's going to get. Jesus wore chacos candy, that's why. That's why we know he did. But we know that humility is the greatest warfare that we could take up. When we're singing that song that he fights our battles, he fights our battles. There's this hope that is actively trusting in the Lord that Isaiah 40 would talk about. That's when we begin to mount up on wings as an eagle. When we begin to soar and understand and experience the ways of the kingdom, it is not because we have mustered it up, that we have figured it out. It is because, we know, we have rest and relied upon the one who can make all things new. 
the one who redeems, the one who continues to renew our hearts, the one who says, hey, no, it is through your dependence upon me. It is through your servanthood through others by preferring that you will find greatness. It is by dying that you will find life. It is by denying that you will gain. These are the ways of the kingdom that are flipped upside down. Possibly they're right side up and we're upside down. Because the ways of the kingdom are the way it was meant to be. And so James understands the same language. And he writes in James chapter 3. He says, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. If you want to vet some of the things that you're reading online right now, vet it with this verse right here. If you want to know if it is earthly or worldly wisdom, line it up with this criteria. If it's coming from heaven and not earthly wisdom, which James would actually say is demonic, he'd say, it's, first of all, it's going to be pure. It's going to be peace-loving. I was guilty of some posts, and I was guilty of some responses in the heyday of a lot of stuff that happened early on in the summer that was not, first of all, peace-loving. And I realized I was operating in trying to take a stand for something that I thought was right, but I was not building a bridge. I was, I was throwing up more walls. I was trying to push for more integration by segregating people that didn't think the way I did. That's just more segregation. And this is really tough right now for our culture because you either see it my way or you're out. Okay, Cancer culture is in the church, but here... James is saying if you want to operate in wisdom and principles that are of this kingdom of the kingdom of God, you want to see heaven come to earth, first of all pure, then peace loving. Consider it. Mutual submission? Boy, I haven't attended a webinar throughout this whole summer about that. <laughs> it's been about everything else. No one wants to grow a church by being, hey, guess what? We're going to have our mutual submission small group again this week and so excited. to We'll come together and prefer one another. Bring someone else's favorite meal. You know, no, you're like, what? In the, that is weird. You're just, Michael, you're not going to grow a church like that. That's just, that's just weird. But that's the scripture here saying that our lifestyle would reflect that. Full of mercy. Good fruit, Kelsey, not the kind that I squeeze out in my flesh. Good fruit, impartial and sincere. This is the criteria James is saying. And then he moves forward. I love James. Man, how many of you know when you need to be smacked between the eyes with a big old rock, you read James? And he says, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? He's saying you're trying to operate in both worlds. You're trying to say, no, I can have wisdom of this. I can still flow in the lanes of the language of this world, and I can still say I'm full of the wisdom of God. I can still have both and not sacrifice my integrity because I just got to keep my influence. He says you're an adulterous people. You don't know that friendship with the world means that you have, you have positioned yourself in enmity with God. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. He goes on in verse 6. He's going somewhere with this. Remember what Jesus has just said after that mountain. And Peter and James are really kind of marinating in this. And then they ask, who's the greatest? And he says, but he gives us more grace. And this is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. He says, submit yourselves then to God. Remember, this is a part of our spiritual warfare. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
Then he goes on, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you're double-minded. It's just the, the standard language of James. Grieve, mourn, well, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Sit in this a little bit, he's saying. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. He and Peter, they had, they had kind of finally started to figure out the ways of the kingdom and what it was going to be established upon. And it wasn't going to be established upon the the central authority, charismatic figure who could really lord it over the group that was going to follow Jesus. It was going to be because someone had found themselves completely dependent upon the Lord and could humble himself and walk in character, saying this is how the kingdom is established. You find yourself right now maybe picked off by the enemy, maybe emotionally in some turmoil, possibly in some relationships financially. I would check your humility status. I would check, and how do you do that? How dependent upon the Lord are you in all these areas where you're finding yourself vulnerable spiritually? Because when we begin, because the verses after Peter where he just talks about humility, having tried to wrestle with this and understanding that this is how I enter the kingdom's way. He says, cast your cares upon who? Upon the Lord because he cares for you. The model of pride in our lives is us trying to carry things in our own strength. If you're living in anxiety, more likely than not, you're carrying some things you were never designed to carry. You are intended to submit those things to the Lord. Lay those upon Him because He cares for you. Pride in our life looks like anxiety. Pride in my life when something breaks at my house is, oh gosh, I don't know how to fix this. Oh my goodness, it's going to flood. It's probably going to, electrical spark, it's going to burn. I don't know what to do because I can't fix anything. But in our spiritual lives and everything, it's, Lord, you're the first one I'm calling. I, I, I can't do this without you. And you're going to be the second one I call and the third one I call. And I'm going to lean on the people you've put in my life because, Lord, here I am. I don't, I don't even know how to pick up these pieces. I don't know where to start. I'm broken. I'm anxious over it. I'm operating in pride because I feel like it's up to me to do. But, Lord, I really know you're the only one that can that's where we begin to enter into humility. And what do we receive when we finally step into that place? We receive grace. We receive grace. You are saved, friend, by grace through faith. You can't even begin to experience the work of salvation in any area of our lives until we first find humility that puts us in a posture and a position to receive his grace. This is the good news. This is the gospel that you can't do it but someone has already done it for you. Just come with dependence upon the one who can already pick up the pieces, who saw them before they even hit the floor and said, I was there even before you opened your mouth and I knew what you needed before you even uttered the first word. That's the father that we are serving. We're his children. Humility will place us in a posture to receive his grace. Amen? But God opposes the proud but helps the humble. We should submit to him. And submission, it's not the same as obedience. Submission is the surrender of one's will, which will lead to obedience. And I think a lot of times we're like, oh man, I've got to, I need to humble myself in the Lord and I need to just obey his commands. And, and that's where it is all leading so that we can fulfill the plan and the purpose that he has for our life. The reason that he's told us some things is because it's, his, it's the best intentions, for our life, it's not he's trying to like, oh, you don't need to do that or you don't need to do that. It's because it's the way he created us and it's a reflection of his nature. 
And we're like, I need to get my stuff together before I even come to him. No, I need to surrender and watch how he will put, put the pieces back together, how he will redeem, how he will restore in a way that I never could because I don't have the same kind of glue for life that his spirit has. And so one of the keys that I just love, the keys to the kingdom that unlock doors that this world can't unlock for you, that turn things from one direction, literally, the change that Jesus is saying that must take place from one direction towards another, bring that lasting change. Start with this key right here, humility. With humility. I said these verses, but I'm going to read them to you. Ephesians, uh-oh, it hopped around. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved. And remember, he's giving grace to the humble. Through faith. This is not from yourselves. These aren't my words. This is Paul. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. You see how it's all connected? Even our salvation is never going to be dependent upon what you can do for him, but what he has already done for you. But now guess what? As his children, he's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to bring heaven to earth and he's going to do it through his people. He's going to do it through you. If you will allow him to. He says, because we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Not for our approval, not for our salvation, not for our forgiveness, not to earn the grace that we feel like we just received. So now I've got to repay him because it was our DNA from the very beginning of how he created us. In Christ Jesus, still through him to do the things that he created us to do because he has prepared those. God prepared them in advance for us to do. If you've heard me say it once, hear me say it again. Romans eleven thirty six, probably a plumb line verse that I love to use for all theology. Pastor Randy, this is, my, this is one of my verses right here. If you want to preach about prosperity, if you want to preach about faith and healing, it must line up, I think, with some of these verses like this. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. For from him and through him and for him are all things. It wasn't David Wilkerson. Who was his son? That, or his, uh, it was his son, right, that was at uh, Brownsville for a little while. Do you remember which uh, Wilkerson it was? Oh, he wrote a book, uh, For God's Sake, Grow Up. I can't remember his first name. The Wilkerson son, he would always say this. He would say that if you are going to espouse to any theology, if you think it's, it's worth dying for, let it line up with this verse right here. That everything that we do, breathe, think, live, and espouse our, our, our spiritual lives to, it must be from him. It must come from God. It must first of all come from him, and it must go through him. But it must not stay with where it has landed in our lives because it all goes back to him. Because the, the relationship we have with God is not just self-serving. It is a reflection to give him glory, to know him and to make him known. And so as we know him, it is not just to fill some void that we were created with, which we were, but it is so that we can then fill the earth with his glory as the waters cover the sea right? We want to see this happen, that it comes from him and it goes through him, but yet it always returns to him. These are all things because it's to him that the glory would be forever. Amen? Amen. That was Paul's words. That was the end of the verse. So while 
This exalted and moving ascription of praise has in view God's plans and operations in the, in the scheme of things where Paul is writing it is about the salvation of, of all segments of mankind, including Jew and Gentile. This is where it's positioned in this letter. But it applies to us in, in, as individuals that would live a life that pleased the Lord, that have our life source, our dependence is from Him, through Him, and back to Him. I love this. I hate that BJ's not going to hear this. Is he out there? BJ can still hear it. Andrew Murray, BJ, says this. Humility, the place of entire dependence on God, is the first duty and the highest virtue of the creature and the root of every virtue. And so pride, or the loss of this humility, is the root of every sin and evil. So, some folks would take Scripture and piece together how, um, how the devil fell from heaven as his position, and we would take some from the prophetic writings of uh, Isaiah and some other ones where we would see that he had a position of authority and influence, uh, possibly leading worship in heaven. Uh, one of the greatest worship leaders, but you know worship leaders, they're all divas, just like the devil. And so there he was in heaven. Oh, sorry, I'm not talking about life. You can preach this sermon on humility way better. So here's the devil, and, and other worship leaders probably like him, I don't know. And so he has this tendency to want to take what he has experienced, God's presence, and say, oh, what we are experiencing, we can become like. The one that we are worshiping, I can exchange what I am reflecting to actually no, I, I, can, I can probably have that same position and authority. There's no longer any humility in his posture of worship. Instead, pride is what comes before his fall. His kick out of heaven would be a result of, and, and do a little study on it, on, on what got him kicked out of heaven, so to speak. And there's a lot of verses that we put together. If it was the root of every sin and every evil, as Andrew Murray is saying, it is even the root of, what, of where the fall happened at the very beginning. And I think you'll see pride there was what the elevation, the false elevation of even the devil in heaven would experience something where he got the truth distorted, which usually is what pride does to us. It will distort what is true for something that seems attractive. You see that in your own life before? Pride will distort something that we have taken that is truth of who God is, but it'll distort it. And he uses this tactic right there in the garden. Did God really say? Did, did, well, yeah, he did say, but he doesn't repeat it as he actually said it. He says he doesn't want you to eat this because he doesn't want you to become like him. The same, the same tactic that got him kicked out. He is trying to keep you from something that is really great. He's trying, really, the tree of knowledge, are you serious? Like, I can't believe God, he's really told you that. I can't tell you how many times in heaven I heard that same thing. Now look where I'm at. So that's who we end up following. The root of all evil. When we place pride and question what the Lord has said in His nature, in His promises, and so many times in our situations, we'll say, well, it didn't work out the way I expected. Man, why are, the, why are these things happening? Why are people right now dying from COVID that I know were loved the Lord? had never, like, shouldn't, shouldn't be the ones that were affected this. Why is this, why is God allowing this to happen? 
Why is God allowing this car wreck that, that took this man's life that I know served the Lord faithful? Why has he allowed these evil things? And so we take the questions and we place them back onto his character as if he caused it to happen when he is allowing us to make choices and realize that we live in a fallen world and our dependence upon him is that God, in our humility, we don't understand. We will never fully understand until on the other side of this life in eternity where we see you and you're fully known and we are exposed, but we can reflect the one that we have been created to reflect in knowledge, in character, and in understanding. Because now, in our pride, we will never fully be able to understand. But it will always be the root of evil to take a truth and twist it with something that seems more attractive. Maybe so that we don't have to take responsibility. Maybe so that blame doesn't have to land on us. Possibly because things don't have to change in our life. And it's just more comfortable and it's easier. Or we don't have to restore that relationship. We don't have to be, first of all, peace-loving. It's, it's more attractive sometimes to hold on to what we're comfortable with and what we're used to and what just feels good to our flesh in that moment. But it sacrifices, it sacrifices the grace that God wants to move into our life with. We lay on those altars of saying, God, I'm going to do it my own way and in my own measure and with my own strength in these areas of my life and we immediately cut off the ability for God to continue to flow grace into those places. Because we're no longer humble. We're no longer dependent upon him. We're no longer saying, God, I need the cross applied here. You're good news of what you can do that I can't. We need God's grace. And humility is the first step towards God's, towards Christ's redeeming work. Humility is the necessary response to experience and accept his goodness. It is the foundation for salvation, but also for every other good work. Every other good work that he has created us for in Christ Jesus. It all is dependent upon the grace that we receive as we humbly surrender and submit to him and him alone. I think grace is an insulator. Uh, you know, winter's coming up and I'm going to start finding my, my breezy spots in my house again. Last night it was just the smoke from the bonfire across the way that I could smell coming in this little crack that I always try to stuff with a paper towel around winter. But grace, grace is that insulator. Grace is what preserves. Grace is what protects. Above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Grace and humility that opens up those avenues for grace are what go, are going to protect us. Humility will keep us from placing ourselves in a position to where we make ourselves vulnerable and open up gaps in our armor to where the enemy could come in and begin to wreak havoc because we become self-dependent again. And so Andrew Murray would say this again, BJ. This one's for you still. He would say humility is simply the disposition which prepares the soul for living on trust. The economy of our spirit is one that completely relies upon the Lord, that receives from Him and gives back to Him, for it is from Him and through Him and back to Him are all things. Humility places us in this lane so that we can receive and live from the wells of a life that gives back to him, the glory that is due his name. And so this morning, I want us to spend a few moments on reflecting, reflecting on what he has done. Receive it with humility and dependence upon him. I'm going to ask the band to come back up here. We're going to take a few moments and go into a time of communion.
And I'm going to give BJ back his music stand because I think he'll need it. But this morning, I, I would like our time of communion to be intentional. For it to be a moment where we say, Lord, what you have done for me, I'm accepting as a child. I'm accepting that it's good news. It is where I find my grace. It is, I no longer, I'm not working to earn your approval, your forgiveness. I'm not even in the mindset of repaying you for the grace that I'm so grateful for. I'm repaying you because I'm in love with you, Jesus. There's no repayment here. It's a life of love because you first loved me. It is out of a heart of gratitude. Lord, I am I am denying myself, including my desire at times, to want to prop up even spiritual life and health. Lord, outside of those facades, I want to say it is because of you and you only. And so this morning through communion, if you didn't receive communion, would you just raise your hand? We may have a few that have come in. Kelsey, and I actually didn't grab one as well, David. I was handing them out to everybody else. Kids have one. So glad y'all came back. One more. Just keep your hand up if you would like to partake with us today. And this morning, I would be amiss if I missed an opportunity for anyone in this house that just needs to find a place with restoration first between you and the Lord. And to be able to partake of communion as a son or a daughter. And maybe this morning you feel like you're not at that place with him right now. That there needs to be restoration and forgiveness in your heart and in your life. And you are so grateful, but you need to experience his forgiveness possibly for the first time. Possibly for the hundredth time you've been away from the Lord. You know what's been going on. With every eye closed, with every head bowed, would you just recognize in this moment that the Lord is extending something to us of restoration, of redemption, of salvation, that what he did over 2,000 years ago upon that cross was so that he could have relationship with you. Your sins are forgiven if you have accepted the blood of Jesus and the work that he did. But he has removed those sins as far as the east is from the west so that he could have an intimate relationship with you. And if you're in this place and you would say, Michael, that's where I need to start today. Before we even partake of communion, I need to find a place of forgiveness and restoration in my relationship with the Lord. I need a fresh start or I need a new start for the first time, whatever it may be. Would you just slip up your hand so I can be praying with you today? Yes. Anyone else? Yes. Amen. Yes. Father, I just pray with these friends here today that are saying, God, I need a new start. I need a fresh start. I want to start over because of your forgiveness that you are giving me for my sins. So today, Lord, we say, God, exchange our filth for your beauty. God, we're saying, Lord, that you are going to be just that, not just our Savior, but also our Lord, that we are choosing to deny ourselves, to take up our cross just as you did and follow you. So each and every person that raised their hand, they're asking for that fresh start today. They're asking, Lord, that they would have the exchange, the divine exchange of who they are for what you have done. I thank you that today they can be called children of God, that they can find redemption, that they can find healing. And Lord, in this place, I just ask that every individual that is here would find in communion with you, in alignment with you, in connection with you, that we come to the table with humility. We come to the table with dependence upon you and you alone.
we just thank you so much for the good news, God, that we're not earning, we're not even sacrificing because you've asked for obedience rather than sacrifice. You want our hearts. And so, Lord, we're coming humbly saying, God, we're receiving what you have already done for us. And on the night that the Lord was betrayed, Jesus would take that bread. If you would take your wafer, hold it up with me. As a representation of the body of Christ that was broken for us. He said when they had given thanks, when they had literally given Eucharist, said a blessing over the body of Christ, he broke it and said, this is my body that is for you. Would you do this in remembrance of me? Would you partake this in remembrance of what the Lord has done? And in the same way, after supper, he took that cup. Him and his disciples that were gathered around that table that had answered, Who do you say I am? You are the chosen one, the Messiah, the anointed one. He took that cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Would you do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me? For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you remember the Lord with us? And Father, we just thank you that in this moment, we can come as a child. We can change our course and our direction and understand that the keys of your kingdom are different. We come with humility and dependence upon you. And we receive something we can't earn or repay. Your grace, your favor. So Lord, we sing this song together and just surrender ourselves to you afresh in this very moment. Thank you, Lord.
Jesus, we thank you that you live forevermore, that the hope and the life that you have transplanted into us as sons and daughters, it gives us a reason, Lord. It gives us a reason to praise your name. It is because you have taken us out of the kingdom of darkness and into your wonderful light, we will fill this earth with praise. Let our lives be a reflection of your goodness and your grace. We thank you, Lord. We humbly accept what you have done for us. God, and I pray over your people this morning that you would continue to allow your face to shine, that you would allow them to be blessed as they go and as they come. And everything that they do and say, may they reflect you and give you glory. May we know you well and may we make you known. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.